this evening's talk <clears throat> is about wise concentration. <clears throat> and beginning with uh, three Pali words, sila, samadhi, and panya. Translated into English as uh, sila, ethical ethics, or uh, ethical behavior or virtue, samadhi or samatha as concentration, serenity or tranquility as it's sometimes translated as, and the last panya translated into wisdom, insight. <clears throat> Over his 45 years of teaching, uh, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight. Or virtue, concentration, and insight forming the three branches of mental development that are essential to all of Buddhist practices. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of heart, of mind, are what lead one into vipassana or the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. Dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And the third, the impersonality, anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and <coughs> mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, <clears throat> as he often did, he starts with a question and then he goes on to answer his own question. So here's uh, a question that he often asked. If concentration, samatha or samadhi is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his question. He says, the mind is developed. And he goes on, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, all lust is, is abandoned. And he asks, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. 
And so concentration, samadhi or samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation. In particular, alternating sequences are developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice, the process, and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila, virtue, as they deepen and mature within us, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease, and what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on the deepest level. Very intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits of attraction, greed, clinging, attachment, and our habits of aversion, worry, resistance, anger, and fear. And the identification with these habitual states. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of suffering. And the word for this in Pali is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, samatha. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from enlightenment. The nature of things, the true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, Mountains, galaxies, California, Iran, Switzerland, dogs, Taos, thoughts, snow, New York, Santa Fe, your favorite restaurant, the Amtrak train system, are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining 
essence, being without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samatha, and panya. In speaking to Ananda, who was one of the Buddha's chief disciples, in the Kimata Sutta, the Buddha again asks a question, and then he proceeds to answer it. He says, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And he responds to his question. He says, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose knowledge and vision, vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhantship. Arhantship being the complete purification of suffering, the end of suffering, the fourth stage of enlightenment. And in uh, speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight, that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to <coughs> learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our most difficult experiences, or maybe what we deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtle, more subtle experiences. 
we could say that purification is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, the process of gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind that's ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up, isn't being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The Vesudhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise uh, on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic uh, metaphors to describe the process of the act of concentration. And I'd like to share a couple of these with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower and then dives toward the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, before absorbing into it. A metaphor, a metaphor for the uh, preliminary access and absorption concentration which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, in, in a little while. Another metaphor offered in the Vasudhi Maga that I particularly uh, relate to because of my own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. <clears throat> Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of attention with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of attention, is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it and a bowl forms. Quite a graphic and 
uh, visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration with the mind, the heart, moving into the deeper states of samadhi in this metaphor, moving into the jhana states. The power of a clear, relaxed, focused mind. A concentrated mind brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. <coughs> we could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing and refreshing and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the beautiful and purifying current of samatha, concentration, I think it would be uh, helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit more about the basis, uh, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, and peace along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, cannot grow when the unwholesome states of mind, of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is really essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration. So, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a med meditation subject, such as the breath, and you're anxious or you're worried uh, during the process, it will prevent you from being calm and joyful. Worry enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to, we could say, cut through thought. Even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. It isn't about kicking out thoughts. Kicking out thoughts is actually rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled 
when it gets lost in something other than what is intended. This is really the first and maybe the most important and most difficult step of the practice. The mind, as we well know, can get lost in myriad, mundane, and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is, is very important. I had such an an experience myself uh, during a a three-month concentration jhana retreat that I sat with my teacher, uh, Venerable Pawak Sayadaw. A very mundane uh, experience. Very informative, mundane experience. For the first week or so of, uh, of this retreat, that retreat with a three-month retreat with Pawak Sayadaw, uh, each day after lunch, uh, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea, taking two or three uh, different uh, uh, loose teas that were in jars uh, and mixing them together uh, in a tea box. An important and seemingly um, necessary treat that I seemingly needed, wanted. So after about a week of doing this, uh, I noticed that there was a box uh, of tea bags of one of the same kinds of tea that I was putting into my fancy mix. And this box was sitting on the counter right in front of me, underneath the loose jars of tea. But the mind had not uh, noticed or connected with it uh, with any kind of clear attention at all up until that moment. And the thought came when the mind did connect and notice this box of tea. Do I really need this? Is all this fancy preparation and seeming need, is this really important? And the answer came, no. No, it's not at all important. It's merely a habitual distraction. So I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and enjoyed it. It was good enough. What happened uh, after this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times, uh, through the rest of the three months of uh, intensive practice, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions, in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest 
and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the heart and mind are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration and jhana is described as the purification of the mind. Samatha, or samadhi, or the development of calm and concentration seriously weakens all of the hindrances. Seriously weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, bliss, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when they clearly manifest, the hindrances, these unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as profoundly weakened in the long term. Particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, more specifically so, if one has the inclination toward attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deep concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of itself, that hinder the development of concentration, and that also hinder the development or the unfolding of insight, of wisdom. To begin with, overall calm and the development of more tranquil body and mind and heart is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, initially applying the attention, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, which is uh, called vitaka in Pali. This establishing of the mind on the object, such as the breath. This eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustaining attention on the object, again, be it the breath or uh, possibly if you're doing metta jhana practice, the, the metta uh, phrases and images, a continuous sustaining attention on the object is called vichara in Pali. And this eliminates uncertainty 
eliminates doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest or a kind of bright happiness, elation in the mind resulting from the purity of the mind, purity of the heart called piti in Pali. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention such as the breath or the object of one's metta and phrases of metta. And this happens with the development of deepening concentration. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration there's much delight and liking of the object of attention which is one of the aspects of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are completely inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness, called Sukha in Pali, which is actually not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. When this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness, agitation, and regret or worry are completely temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of deep concentration called ikagata in Pali. Again, occurring, uh, occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of deepening concentration and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana. This is the experience of absolute centeredness, balance, equanimity. It eliminates sensuous desire for anything in those moments. As samatha or concentration develops and moves along and its imperfections, the not its imperfections, <laughs> the imperfections, and the, which are the states that corrupt the natural purity of the heart, the natural purity of the mind, when at least some of these imperfections have been very clearly let go abandoned and relinquished, at that time one truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. When this confidence arises, 
the mind and the heart often experience a great inspiration, an enthusiasm, and an appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And also often to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the <clears throat> subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are actually removed. They disappear with the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment or identification. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. At this point, the mind and heart are very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold. <clears throat> or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that I mentioned briefly towards the beginning of the talk. And these can be developed and serve our, uh, to serve our insight practice. The first of these is what's called momentary concentration. And this is the development and growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one and ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second 
type or level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and very powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration and can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of jhana concentration. But it's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With excess concentration, the mind is malleable, very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during the time that the mind uh, is uh, temporarily totally purified from all unwholesome states, during this particular time, during the absorption of of jhana concentration, while at the same time, unwholesome states are profoundly weakened in the long run, though not totally and finally eliminated. It's actually only through vipassana, insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, particularly the aspect of momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, less identification. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that actually isn't everyone's inclination or interest and not absolutely necessary for a profound and potentially liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, 
slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet and absorb into experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, but with no pondering, no thinking about what's occurring. In light of this, I'd like to share a, a simple and uh, potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life, which in fact were um, explored uh, to some degree in the film last night. And we'll look at, the, look at these experiences in a little more detail. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that in fact uh, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, of mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Buddha, or the Bodhisatta at that point, he wasn't a Buddha yet, it's said that the Bodhisatta, and Bodhisatta meaning breaking the word down, Bodhi meaning awakening or enlightenment, and sata is a being uh, dedicated to or having the strong intention to bodhi, to awaken. It said that the bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In, re in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood, appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when uh, the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. So right about this same time of year. Young Siddhartha, as they so interestingly showed in the film last night, young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly as he sat under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention, the kind of attention that children can sometimes give to things when they're interested. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining 
on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of the sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him and in his heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice or attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, much later, as a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body, as we heard about again in the film last night, uh, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could, this, could, have, could that have been the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assuredness that this in fact was the path to liberation and resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. 
this was really a turning point in the Buddha to be for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening in his quest for enlightenment this was a turning point and a change in his evaluation of pleasure in that it was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, let go of, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself, and then putting up with them, or trying to live through them, or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling, by trying really, really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme, austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self in physical and mental self-created hardship. And this was quite a profound realization for him. If you consider your own life, how many times in small, even maybe in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, situations, activities, relationships that created hardship or a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity in your own way doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that it would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness and ease into your life. Potentially, certainly, a certain kind of strength uh, may be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of awakening, can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering this, his a childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart, that is secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed and clinging, 
free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta had the insight that deep concentration, jhana, was a step on the way to enlightenment, an important and useful step on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed uh, in his greater discourse to Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure, since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme, austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and regained his strength. And he continues telling Sakaka in this sutta, in this teaching, that he then went uh, and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, as he explained to Sakaka, he said, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, a purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on, just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. 
no different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away or run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind made up, often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or isn't supposed to be, what's good or what's bad, what we definitely know is true or definitely know isn't true. And we so often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice. A mind made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off to the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering. And what prevents the heart, prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of vipassana, the teaching and practice of insight, wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life. Carry us to the other side to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living within the natural state of an undisturbed heart, an undisturbed mind. The current of samadhi or samatha, the development of concentration, including the states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, potentially healing and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and is essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. 
And so, as awakening beings, here we are today. More than 2,500 years after this story that I've just shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and very powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it along to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, samatha, and panya, and without a doubt are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from. And I'd like to close this evening's talk <clears throat> with a Mary Oliver poem uh, that speaks to this evening's uh, topic in her quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique <laughs> and yet uh, moving way, particularly in the midst of this early spring season. And she calls this poem such singing in the wild branches. <clears throat> it was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled, sprinkled upward like rain rising, and in fact it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and all the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such, such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? 
Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. Let's sit for just a moment. <clears throat> 